0: I got up at 5 in the morning and I went to bed about midnight for five years. Every day. I worked. You're listening to
1: On the Record Off Script. My name is Mark Coffin. I'm your host. And this is a special summer edition of the podcast. We are taking a break from our usual format for the rest of the summer, where we walk step-by-step through the career path of ex-MLAs. And for the summer, we're going to be sharing more or less long-form cuts of the interviews we took with former MLAs directly, so featuring one individual each week. It'll give you a better understanding of who that person is and what their experience was, and also a better sense of what our interviews sounded like, which were, uh, well, the ones we'll share with you are uh, quite fascinating and interesting characters and individuals all of whom share pretty passionate and uh, articulate thoughts and reflections about their time in public life but don't necessarily agree with one another so you'll get a range of former MLAs from different parties different backgrounds and in many cases different opinions from within the same party so these are the ones that kind of stuck out in our minds the most while we were going along with this project and in many ways provided a bit of a frame for thinking about some of the comments of the other MLAs as well so uh I hope you enjoy and this gives us a bit of a break from our usual task of writing and producing the episodes which takes a fair amount of work speaking of which if you are a regular listener to the podcast and you haven't yet become a supporter consider dropping by offscript.ca slash donate and making a small contribution to help cover the costs of the production of this podcast all your donations go directly to the cost of producing the podcast and if you're not able to do that or you'd like to do something in addition to that we'd really like it if you could go to apple podcasts and find this podcast's page search for on the record offscript and give us a bit of a review there's a star rating and place for comments both of them are helpful in getting the word out about the podcast so other people with interests similar to yours can discover something that they also might like. All right, on to this week's featured interview, and that is with former Truro Bible Hill MLA Eleanor Norrie. So in doing the sex interview project with former MLAs, it became clear early on that the project would be a bit of a puzzle. Nova Scotia politics works differently for each MLA, and that varies depending on who you are, what the color of your skin is, what gender you identify with, what era you served in, what part of the province you come from, what party you belong to, and who was leading the party at that time. All kinds of variables, and lots of people have very different experiences that you might think would have had similar experiences, but it wasn't the case. Trying to understand how all of this actually shakes down in practical terms is no small task, but each interview we did gave us another piece of the puzzle to how Nova Scotia politics actually works. In today's podcast, we'll share the tape from my conversation with Eleanor Norrie, a former MLA from the Truro Bible Hill area, and one who held several different cabinet portfolios in John Savage's liberal government in the 90s. I enjoyed this chat with Eleanor because she offered several pieces of the puzzle. A couple of pieces that were surprising for me were how she, as a first-time candidate, was invited into the design of the party's platform, as I assume were many other candidates at her time, which isn't something that more recent candidates will be familiar with, at least not the ones I've been speaking with. And she talks about her negotiations with Texan oil tycoons around the Sable offshore project and the royalty rights to the drilling that was done there. And I think most interestingly, Eleanor was responsible, or she was part of the cabinet uh, that decided to close the Nova Scotia Teachers College or Normal College in Churro, which was a very controversial decision at the time, but also significant because it was in her riding. And she talks about the challenges of of doing that and and carrying a message that she believed was good for the province home to her riding, where obviously people were not uh, as convinced that it was good for for anybody. All right, here's my conversation with Eleanor Norrie. One thing I forgot to mention while we were in the studio recording that introduction was that in my interview with Eleanor, it took place in the fall of 2015, which was the same day that Justin Trudeau and his cabinet were getting sworn in as the new liberal government. And the cabinet was uh, equal uh, seats for men and women, uh, both of which are things that uh, Eleanor and I reference at points during uh, our discussion, since the TV was on mute in the corner of the room.
0: What did you do before you entered politics? Well, I was 50, just around 50 when I got officially involved in an elected capacity. Prior to that, I began, first of all, I was a schoolteacher prior to being married, and then I was a pretty well, a stay-at-home mom, if you will, with my three daughters, and got heavily involved in activities that they were involved in on a volunteer basis. And it just for some reason or other, I would always get heavily involved. And I think every organization I ever got involved in, I ended up being the chair or the president. I just, uh, uh, I don't say no easily <laughs> to getting work done. And then uh, and my husband, just after, well, I guess we were, after we were married, uh, opened up a restaurant in town. So I was involved with uh, that. As my children got older, I got more involved in that. So I just sort of helped him from a behind-the-scenes point of view, doing books and that sort of thing. But I got heavily involved in uh, in the arts community, and I got heavily involved in activities, sports, sporting activities with my children, social activities as well, you know, all all the things young people get involved in. And through high school, so I was just uh, became a sort of a well-known volunteer, if you will, and kept doing that right up until the time I was asked to run. All through that as well, I was always volunteering and involved politically with the local liberal associations.
1: What made you get involved
0: in the Liberal Party? It was family tradition. Uh, my mother was always herself was always heavily involved, and my mother-in-law. Once I was married, and I knew her prior to that, but once I was married, uh, her name was Margaret Norrie, and she ran. She was the first woman to run for the legislature here in Nova Scotia. She de- was defeated. She was defeated by Bob Stanfield and G.I. Smith. It was a dual riding at the time, so she had a major influence. You know, she's one of my mentors, and uh, I admired her a great deal. She a role model for me. Right. And was your mother or my mother-in-law, your mother-in-law. Okay. mother in law, husband's uh-huh. mother. And she eventually became a senator, she uh, was appointed by Pierre Trudeau. Uh-huh. And so it, I was always surrounded by people interested in politics, and my uh, brother in law ran also in 1970. I think that's the first election I really got heavily, heavily involved because it was family and that sort of thing. And I just got caught up in the whole thing, and I got caught up in the Liberal Party, and I, and I liked the people, and I liked the fun of it all, and mm-hmm. you know, the challenge. And so it uh, that sort of led me down a path that I didn't know where I was going, but where I ended up mm-hmm. <laughs> was to be asked to uh, represent the Liberals and run for nomination.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you were deciding uh, to run for nomination... Did you have any conversations with your
0: mother-in-law? No, she was passed away by that time, and, and so had my mother. My mother was uh, ill at the, just when they were talking about me running, and her call, only comment to me was, Oh, Eleanor, I don't want you to get hurt. <laughs> because politics is, She know, she understood politics more than I do, I think. So I was always sort of regretted the fact that neither one of them were there when I actually did win the season and then went into cabinet. So it was, you know, it was quite a thrill and quite a... Well, it's a challenge, but in a real opportunity.
1: When you say you're asked around, who was it that you're asked
0: you're The local Liberals got involved, and there was a couple that were uh, heavily involved in the community that uh, said, you know, why don't you let your name stand for nomination? So I did a lot of research on what was happening at the time within politics. John Buchanan had resigned. You could see the door opening up for possibility for change in government as well. So it was an opportunity. It was, timing was right, mm-hmm. and the whole bit ended. At the time, there was quite upheaval and split within the Conservative Party or the Progressive Conservative Party in the toro Baba Hill riding. This is actually Colchester North. I'm about 50 meters from the border. (laughs) But but I grew up in Toro, and I knew it. So it was an opportunity. There was going to be a change in government. You knew that. There was going to be a split in this riding. So it was an opportunity to take advantage of that, to to win the seat. Typically and historically, uh, progressive conservative writing since well before that, but really since Bob Stanfield's time because he was from Toronto. So I did a lot of research and all of that, and the possibility of getting the nomination number one. Tough for women to get nominations. I think it's maybe improving now, and I think this will, what's happening here today will change that. Uh, issue. It won't be as, quite as uh, difficult for women to get the nomination. You mean the
1: the gender parity in capital?
0: That and just the openness and the fact that so many women won. I think more women won, ran and more women won in this election and in the, in historically. there's more seats, but still. <laughs> I remember going to visit the legislature when I was in high school. I mean, it was just a room full of white-suited men that, you know, it was just... Uh, when I would be, I think I would be in grade eleven or twelve at that time, and it's just something that would never a young woman would never dream of ever finding herself sitting down there. But I remember, I remember looking down and being in awe of it. But was, you know, it just never crossed my mind. Gee, I'd like to do that someday because it was just not a possibility.
1: You said it was hard for women to get the nomination.
0: I think. Well, yeah, yeah. it wasn't hard uh, it, in that day and age. I would say during the up until about in the nineteen nineties, because. I don't know. I don't know what it's the word "hard" or not. It was just a difficult thing for people to accept that the women would possibly win the seat. So, if there was a woman running, they may try to get a man to run against her for the nomination because they want to win the seat. Because it was it wasn't happening a lot. In the you know, Alexa McDonough was one of the first to you know have a seat in the House. You know, and, and, and that was with a different party. But to go to the the old guard parties, the, the progressive conservatives and the liberals, they get the nomination. In order to win the seat, I would say that the the inner circle within the parties in all the different ridings, we think, of, well, we want to get that seat. The possibility of that seat, we put a man there. And quite often you'd find the women in seats that they're not going to win anyway. I mean, that's the was the, uh, the thinking and I think it was still that way, and I think what's happening with Justin Trudeau right now, what's happening with across the country, with a whole new change in how the attitudes of people, the attitudes of young people, that'll be historic, I mean, historically gone. It'll be that attitude.
1: But, and so, I mean, it sounds like it was hard to get the nomination, but how... I, I wasn't
0: challenged. You
1: were <laughs> challenged, so there was no plan for
0: the nomination? So, no, and, the, and I didn't, I worked really hard to get the nomination, I Turned my family, my breakfast milk, into a, an office, and I rented a computer. In those days, there weren't many computers around. I didn't have one. Wow. This and is 19... 1990. 1990, okay. And Well, my, my, I was nominated in 1992, and the election was in
1: ninety
0: three. Okay. <clears throat> so, you know, and I just signed up members to the party, and I worked everybody that was a member of the party, and I went to that nomination with two speeches because I wasn't still certain that I, there was going to be somebody run against me. There was no rumors of it, but I was absolutely sure that there was going to be somebody to challenged me for the nomination uh-huh. that night.
1: What was it like running in the, in the general election campaign?
0: In 93, it was uh, John Savage I actually was co-chaired the convention for the leadership when he won the leadership. So I, I hadn't supported anybody in the leadership because I was chairing it. So I was heavily involved with people right across the province in running that leadership convention, which was really exciting. It was a really exciting time for the Liberal Party. And there were there were five of them. And uh, uh, we didn't know who, Don Down or John Savage, which one was going to win it. And that was the famous telephone. I don't know how old you are. If you remember, we had an mt came to, or Maritime Teller, what it was called at the time, offered us the opportunity to use telephone voting. So you phoned in the vote. So we had people signed up, and everybody was given a PIN. And they were to call in, and then the PIN to identify them, and then they had a number for each candidate. So we sat around, and they were sure this was going to happen, and everything was going to be perfect, and they had no hiccups to it. The morning of the vote, we were at the World Trade Center in Halifax, the Port Royal Room. We had banks of telephones all lined up. We had a lot of people did come to the convention. But everybody dialed at the same time right across the province and everything went crash. <laughs> we there was no vote. And I mean people were so new to the to the uh process. I remember seeing some of the former or at the time they were MLAs standing there, keep dialing the number and keep dialing the number, <laughs> waiting for somebody to say thank you. Like, hello, this is not gonna work. <laughs> So we had to call a halt to the whole thing, and we had to regroup, and we had a crisis team in place. And I don't know if it, if it altered the outcome of that vote or not. I don't know. So how did the vote actually take place? So then the mt had to finance the whole new paper ballot. And then also they, we, we did paper, we set up a paper ballot, but they also set up a telephone system that was going to work. So we had to redo the whole convention in three weeks. But the sky was the limit from a cost point of view. You know, we just did what we had to do. It was kind of an exciting time, and it was the, the famous telephone vote. So, and then,
1: I heard
0: that story before. Oh, oh, that was quite exciting. So anyway, it did put uh, me in, in a position of a lot of notoriety. <laughs> I, there were, I was co-chair. There were two women co-chairing that.
1: So what was the election campaign like, the general election
0: it was exciting. It was, it, was, it was sort of came in the heels of that vote. John Savage became very well known. He had been the mayor of Dartmouth, and he had good advisors around him. And they invited every candidate in on a weekly basis as we were setting platforms up. And what were those meetings about? So they were setting policy in every. They, you know, they had for every department of government. You know, sure. municipal affairs, and finance, and human resources, housing, education, health. And we were part of the designing the platform before it was released. You know, and we, we brought in some major sweeping changes, which made us very unpopular. But they've all worked out to be, you know, from the Department of Environment, we brought in the whole recycling, waste management, brought in emergency medicine, brought in the whole new system of ambulances and the, and the health care system. And this is one of my, one of the issues that really uh, was difficult for me, being from Truro Bible Hill, the teacher's college was in Truro Bible Hill. You know, we discussed at great length, and I did a lot of research on the education of teachers, because I knew it was going to affect me. So as a result of all of that, when we brought it in, the teacher's college was closed, and it was a 142 years old facility and institution here. So it uh, was part of my demise. Mm-hmm. You know, having closed that,
1: and when you
0: were part of that decision, oh yes, all the caucus would be part of it. I mean, we a lot of debate uh-huh. and a lot of uh, questions asked. I mean, I just I didn't make the I didn't agree with it without knowing what I was doing and without a lot of research and looking right across Canada and the United States and what they were doing with teacher education and and the results of the students coming out of the different systems with the different you know math and and reading especially math was really or arithmetic and math was changing at that time, and uh, I think it required more of a professional university setting. The teachers' college was a very it was good from I went to teachers' college. I went there as a normal college I was a student a graduate alumni <laughs> that uh, it was all from a very practical point of view, and I don't know that I was well educated enough i I had all the practice I needed I had all the theory I needed, but I don't know that those of us who went through there compared to what's happening now where it had the education that four years of an arts degree or a science degree would give you, you mm-hmm. know, in that setting. So anyway, that's a whole other topic. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, maybe we'll come back to that because uh, I'm curious.
0: So that, that was all part of the discussions. Uh, in the platform development. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it wasn't decided at that time uh, what to do with education. Educating teachers, but it was talking about changing the education system and changing how we deliver education and that sort of thing. Like, you know, we reduce the number school boards and things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we'll come back to that a bit later because it sounds like it was part of the decisions you had made as government. So you were elected uh, as MLA, and at the same time, did you move right into capital? Yeah,
0: it was right up like that okay. by learning. So you never would have
1: been on the back bench.
0: Oh, and I think it would be, I think. It would be an advantage to either be in the backbench or to be in opposition. And I think opposition would be a better training ground before you went into cabinet than even a backbench. bench.
1: Hmm. Why do you say that?
0: Well, because when you're in opposition, I would love to have been in opposition sometime, either before or after, because then you can... I always felt, just for an example, that I have a lot of admiration for Alex McDonough now. But in those days, she was always in opposition. So she, the sky was the limit. She could say anything, knowing she'd never be in government, to try to implement it. So the books are wide open then on what you think could happen, and then you have to hold the government in account what they're doing. So it's just a real good learning exp- you know, It would be a good place to learn the system in opposition before you went into government or even into cabinet. Mm.
1: So how did you learn... Uh, <laughs> when you
0: actually, when you we're all uh, i i were I got up at five in the morning and I went to bed about midnight for five years every day. I worked I had my m l a office here in toro and uh and then my and I was part of the caucus in Halifax as well as the being in cabinet so it was really was a learning curve because just to uh Learn the ropes just from a strictly day to day. Where's the bathroom? How do you find the key to get into your office to where your office is? And not only was I in cabinet, I was also, in those days, was called priorities and planning, the Treasury Board, if you will. So I had Tuesday mornings with priorities and planning, and then I had Wednesday morning with caucus, and I had Thursday mornings with cabinet, as well as, you know, and then when the house sat, you'd have to prepare for question period, and you'd have to learn your portfolio. I was first appointed to the uh, civil service commission and i had other smaller i had the status of women i had sport and recreation and others that i was responsible for but i also had was responsible at that time to change the civil service commission into the department of human resources give it a whole new uh, entity if you will so because it it dealt with the hiring and the firing it dealt with the unions and it dealt with the third thing whatever it is i can't think of it right now but uh, so it was so we created the Department of Human Resources while I was minister
1: and what were I guess what were some of the key things that you needed to get a handle on when you first took on the job as minister?
0: We spent a lot of time not only with the goings on of the department and the workings of the department and getting to you know your deputy minister the different issues within the department we also spent a lot of time talking about ethics and government about open government, communications within government. When we were elected in 1993, there were no computers in the minister's offices. You know, my secretary gave me a dictaphone, to, you, know, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, we have computers for this now, you know. So just the actual day-to-day workings, it was really, I think, difficult for all of us in, in that cabinet to bring it into the, to have a, a, either a pager or a cell phone. You know, or a computer in your office so you could communicate with one another. So the departments communi- could communicate. It was each department was well, they talk about it and they still talk about it all being silos rather than working across government.
1: So when you say ethics and government
0: We had actually we had we had seminars on it. The prime the Premier Savage set it all up was was one of his goals. Was to bring ethics into government because there was a lot of scandal day in the day, and there was also a lot of favoritism and patronage and all that sort of thing that he tried to change. And much to the liberals, did not appreciate that. When we didn't hire, we didn't fire all the Tories and hire liberals and all the different, you know, especially the Department of Transportation and those areas. And so we paid a price for that. And I think that not only do you have patronage from a political point of view, you'll get patronage and within departments, uh, you're know, hiring family and hiring friends right within the departments. Mm-hmm. When the minister has nothing to do with that. It's... You mean sort of
1: like the managers would hire the yeah. their own? Yeah. Okay, so that
0: was part of the... We tried to do it from top down. I guess it never works from an ethics point of view. But We forgot to tell the people of Nova Scotia what the problems were. We just tried to solve all the problems that we knew they had. <laughs> So, and they didn't appreciate it, the liberals didn't appreciate what we were doing because they were all waiting for their d- chance to you know work on the highways and work with here you know and that you know hire just teachers or all the rest of it so made it difficult and on top of all of that, when we were elected, there hadn't been a budget we were they were three months past budget uh time Toddy Cameron didn't bring in a budget. Half the money was spent. You, you're by law, you can spend half of the money before the, you know, before the actual budget is passed or the estimates are passed. So we looked at the books, and there was a six hundred million dollar deficit with a nine billion dollar debt. <laughs> you know, there was no money to spend, you know, and it was so we did a lot of things within the public service and a lot of things within to make money, as well as cut expenses. We brought in what they called the savage days. We had gave them five days off at Christmas without pay. Savage days. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even talk about I imagine. No. And, we, and then we cut salaries by anybody, anybody who received any funding from the provincial government, regardless of where they worked in the province, or even if their funding was partially funded by government, lost 2% of their salary. And my daughter was working for the the Municipality. She's working for in Wolfville as a recreation director, making no money, and it took two percent of her salary. <laughs> she just, she just, you know, so it really did. It really was a drastic uh, cut to, to try to. It was going to be six hundred. I think it was six hundred and seventy three million dollar deficit was projected. So we cut it down to under three hundred. We had to find three hundred. It was sort of an arbitrary number that we chose to uh, lessen it by half.
1: So, I'm curious how a decision like that would have been made in in that government. Was it a finance minister's decision, a whole cabinet decision, was caucus included?
0: It was a cabinet decision in the end. Mm-hmm. The, the Department of Finance and, and the Minister of Finance uh, brought in all the proposals. So, you sit in cabinet and you, you know, weigh it all out. And then you weigh it all out, first of all, from a you know, finance point of view, and strictly looking at numbers, and then you... And what we didn't take into consideration, we just said we can't we can't think politically because we can't survive. This province can't survive if we don't do something. So and, and we took a major political hit with that budget. So the the, min, the minister of finance takes the lead. Right. But and you would have then, all
1: had an opportunity to, to comment and weigh in on
0: it before it would uh, have been. And, and uh, John Savage had his advisors just about fell over when one of the debates or one of the interviews bef- during the election had said no new taxes. We brought in taxes. <laughs> we raised the, the uh, GST. You know, and it was just. You know, and he took a major political hit on that. You know, Johnny is a liar. You'd hear from that sort of thing because he. he did. We had to bring in, We had to bring in taxes. We had to raise money as well as cut expenditures. And then what we did at the same time, as well as do all that, is that we also re-engineered government. So we were making changes. People were confused, you know, are you making that change to save money, or are you making it to, because you're changing the policy of how government works. It was a really interesting time. I'm glad I was there to do it. I always said at the time, the next administration will come in and either take the credit for what we've done, or they'll ruin it. And I would say that the next administration did spend money, but I would say that John Hamm, when he came in, was one of Nova Scotia's better premiers you know he he didn't have good horses around him but he is a uh, stand up very astute clever man and uh, you know he was a Tory and I, I i know him well he was in opposition when we were in government he got a lot of credit for stuff that we did <laughs> so that's, that's politics getting
1: credit for things he might have done yeah yeah so while you were in cabinet what- portfolios
0: did you hold over there? Well, I created the Department of Human Resources, and right. then and then there was the need to make changes within the, uh, once that was done, the, there was a need, I can't remember the reason why, but there was, I was moved from there to the Department of Housing and Consumer Affairs, and at that time I still had the Sport and Recreation Commission, and I still had the Status of Women, but I also got the Nova Scotia Liquor Commission, and the, uh, can't remember. It Was the Gambling Control Act I can't remember the word. So I had, in the you know, I had a lot of other minor responsibilities. So it was just nonstop. So when I went to Housing and Consumer Affairs, we were at the same time deciding to make some changes within the departments, and we moved Housing into Municipal Affairs. So I dismantled the Department of Housing and Consumer Affairs and ended up. I remember the day that we made the decision that we would move Housing. Housing went to Municipal Affairs and Consumer Services went to another entity. So I just remember looking around the cabinet room and I said, I don't have a place to go tomorrow. (laughs) My department's going to be gone. And then then he uh, did a major shuffle and he put me in natural resources, which at that time was huge. It was mining, forestry, parks and protected areas, energy, wildlife, you know, so it was it was a huge department at the time. But at that time, we were negotiating with the Sable Offshore Energy Project for drilling for gas off of Sable Island. So that landed. I walked into that, tried to deal with you know, the Texans. The Texans. <laughs> the Shell and right, okay. you know, all, all the, the consortium that made up the, uh-huh. the offshore energy project.
1: And what were the... the- Issue you would have been
0: dealing with ever. number one. Number one was the royalties, and uh, for the uh, gas. And the second to that was also the pipeline that was going to be Mar- Maritime's Northeast Pipeline. where I had to negotiate with them to bring the gas ashore and take it right across the province of New Brunswick in the direction it was going to go. I went into the cabinet. I went into Natural Resources. I think it was the first of May or the end of April, April thirtieth, maybe. Probably the end of the fiscal year. In middle of May, about three weeks later, I had to make a presentation to the, in Houston to the, to the major oil and gas consortiums. And it was a major conference, a convention in Houston, Texas.
1: And there you're talking about royalties or the... Well, that was
0: just talking about energy and some of the things we were doing in Nova Scotia. To try and
1: to
0: attract business? To attract investors and to learn how the different royalties were set up around the, mm-hmm. the world, actually. And I had a lot of advisors and advice and and, uh, assistance. I mean, I was, uh, but I still had to be take responsibility for the decisions in the end. Uh So we set up the royalty regime for the gas, and uh, for just that project. And then uh, we're in the process of setting up a generic regime for any. Gas, there or oil that was going to come into the province after the fact. You had to work with the federal government on that as well, because mm-hmm. they're involved with, with that as well.
1: Okay. And is that like a I'm curious? There's like the federal government. The federal government. I assume the the companies that are involved in extracting the natural gas have a role to play in those negotiations. Would it be negotiations that you'd be? Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: How do, how, I guess, how would that something like an agreement on royalties end up shaking down?
0: Well, I walked out of the room once. <laughs> you know, just because I knew what I you know, I knew uh well, I met you know, with, with advice that I had just you know, because you set up a regime over the period of 20 years and and a certain percentage and uh, I can't give you all the complete detail now, but there was a percentage over the first 5 years and some for the second and some for the, or for the next 10 and then for the 15 into the 20. And I wanted to go to 35% at the tail end of it. And they didn't want to go to 35%. And we came to a stalemate, and I just left the room. And I got my 35% before we finished. So, mm. and it was, they had some major upfront costs that we had to take into consideration for them as well. So, you know, it was, uh, you had to realize. So, the early on, you, you kept the royalty percentage low enough so they could, they call them sunk costs or upfront costs. They used to talk about upstream and downstream, and I could never keep it straight, which way was up and which way <laughs> when they talked about the, the process. I still can't get, get it quite straight if it was upstream or downstream. Right.
1: <laughs> a lot of time we, almost in a conspiratorial way, you hear often about like what the corporate influence in government is, or you know, is there a corporate influence, or how much of it, if there is one, and it's hard to, to know how these kind of conversations would go. We don't
0: often get to hear about it. Yeah, there was there was uh I don't know about so much influence as uh, maybe bits of pressure or uh, requests and debate with the municipal unit, with the for instance the in the in Guysboro County where the gas came ashore, the municipality and the economic development group from there. You know, were you know, always wanting to meet with me or with the Premier or with our group to express their concerns or their wishes and you get to, the federal government was the de- hardest to deal with actually I don't know if the debates ever been settled or not it seems to me that it may be by now but is uh, like who owns that gas or who who has the who is entitled to the royalties for the gas when it's offshore you know with when it's Sable Island actually is part of Nova Scotia so it you know it was so they had the federal government to deal with and as well as uh, the whole the consortium of the Sable Project, and I had an interview with uh, Paul Withers, and we also had our critics, people from especially from Alberta that uh, knew all about gas and oil, that tried to tell us we were doing the wrong thing or whatever. I remember Paul Withers making a comment to me about, you know, how can, you know, Eleanor Norrie, you know, the school teacher from torah deal with the, the Texans, with the, you know, the, the big wheelers and dealers from the gas and oil industry, you know. Yeah, and I just said, you know, that I got well, it actually annoyed me. It insulted me, and, and I responded like it was insult. Look, I'm a Nova Scotian, and I'm looking after Nova Scotian interests, you know, and that sort of thing. And Don Down had been in natural resources prior to me, so he had involved him in the question. And I've always wished I had said, Don Down is a farmer, and I came from a farming family. And if you've ever tried to deal with a farmer, they can out- deal any, <laughs> gas and oil dealer or wheeler, wheeler-dealer. I wish I'd said that, anyway, I didn't.
1: <laughs> the beginning, we talked about what led you into politics. Uh, you mentioned sort of this looking in when you visited the legislature in high school. I'm curious how, obviously, there was more women when you were elected, but not many.
0: Four, really four of us. Actually, there are five, Count Alexa.
1: What was the experience like for you being one of the very few women in the legislature in
0: the cabinet? I have a uh, saying that I was part of the community. I was part of the we. Over there, those people that are elected are they. So it's the we and the they. Because you'll hear people say, they are doing this to us. They are like, who's they? You know, you hear that all the time, they and them. The day after I was elected, the community doesn't treat you as part of the we anymore. You're the they. So you become they. So you become somebody that either they want to be with or they want to attack. Like it's you're you're separate apart from the community. It's just it's it's what happens. Then on top of that when you're a woman, I call it the she they <laughs> because you could become then not only are you they in government, you're a woman in government. And people did have a hard time accepting that, especially in cabinet. I had several experiences of people I don't know how to say it exactly, but I was Minister of Sport and Recreation. The house was sitting, and there was a major bond spiel. I think, a, I don't know what it was, the Nova Scotia Championships were taking place at the Mayfire Curling Rink, and they invited me to come And as, as the opening, part of the opening. The house was sitting. I had question period, and I had to get from the house to the curling rink. I had very little time to spare. My daughter happened to be in Halifax, and she said, I'll drive you down, so she came and got me whisked me down there. We pulled up, and there was a parking place right by the door. I was all oh, good. There's a spot right there, because the parking places were all filled. She was driving, and she pulled in. And there was a man standing there, looking very important. He came running over to the car, and he said, You can't park there. That's for the minister, and he's not here yet. <laughs> I am the minister. I, that You'd run into that more and more and more, that people would expect me to be a man, and then if I wasn't, they didn't know quite what to do with me. And I think, you know, I think all women at that time, like Sandy Jolly was also in cabinet and uh, is a female. So the two of us, we tried not to join forces. At least I tried not to. I tried to be part of the whole. I had difficulty with that. And I and I still, I actually, the day that you were there at the MLAs, he had asked, Jeremy Aikerman had asked a couple of us to speak about our experiences at the dinner. And that was part of my speech. And you went right down that whole road about the (laughs) we-they. You know, I sort of... And Howard Epstein had written the book, and he talked about the same sort of thing, about you expect your position to receive respect, you know, because it's not you, it's your position. And I think there has to be respect for that position. I think some ministers and some MLAs think that it's a personal thing, and I tried not to make it a personal thing. I didn't want people to... To treat me any different than Eleanor Norrie that I always was but I did expect some respect from the point of view that I was the Minister of the Crown you know, mm. that I was in a, that position is, deserves the respect
1: And yeah, you kind of mentioned how it sort of affected your perception in the community or the treatment that you would have had in the community around the cabinet table, around the caucus table, or in the legislature yeah, I guess, would you have been treated differently in that space as well?
0: couple of times yeah, a couple of times it was uh, from and question period point of view.
1: So. Yeah, you
0: know, Yeah, a little condescending, you know, especially the experienced former cabinet ministers that were in opposition, you know, who knew more than, than any of us did in our cabinet, because I think it was not only, I think there were two in cabinet, that had been in cabinet before, under Regan's, Guy Brown and Bill Gillis. They had been in cabinet prior to that. Up until then, everybody, they, they, they mostly were always in opposition. I think there was a couple that had been there. Like Joe Casey who had been a backbencher in the past. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you'd get that strictly from a, just a, you know, we know more than you do point of view, or mm-hmm. then as a woman. And I remember answering a question, I'm not going to name any names here, in the house, and it had to do with the offshore and I was being attacked about the regime that was coming forward or the pipeline. I can't remember the issue at the time. And I had a quote from a former minister that I used. I managed to get it through the department and sort of threw it back in my answer. And that former cabinet minister was so mad, at the end of question period, just as the speakers were changing to the deputy speaker, and I was sitting right, right by the speaker's to, it came right around to my desk and pounded my desk, and just you know I had no right to throw that at like just I mean he would never have done that to a man, but the speaker didn't see it at least the deputy speaker claims they didn't see it happening, and when we, when the House went into the committee the whole, I stood up at a point of privilege and mentioned it, but uh, you know and, and I took exception to it and demanded an apology and Now it didn't uncame, and the speaker didn't see it, so they didn't rule on it, but the next day I got an apology. And and all the women in the house at the time wanted me to join forces with them and really make an issue out of it. I said, no, this is not... Was that
1: particular experience or the general experience
0: of... What was the question?
1: About that particular issue you encountered or with the general kind of
0: experience? I would say particular, there were particular issues, but I think overall, on the whole, it was all a very good experience and I think that I would encourage any woman to get involved and be a role model for women.
1: You're saying you think it's. you saying you think
0: it's shifted now. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I wish they wouldn't talk about gender parity. I wish they wouldn't talk, make it say it that way. There has to be there, and I think Justin Trudeau had to said in order to make it happen, had to say there'll be parity, and had to you know I'll make it fifty fifty rather than say I'm going to have. You know, but why not say you know why is it the women are making parity? Why don't they do it the other way around? We're going to have just as many men as we have women. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I think that but this is a step. I think it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So you have to go through those painful steps, I guess, to get to where you want to go.
1: We've talked a lot about your experience as minister and in cabinet and the legislature. I'm curious how you would have approached kind of a learning curve and the expectations of being the MLA for this area.
0: The other day we were talking about it when we met as ex MLAs. We, which I like to say former rather than ex, but anyway, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, what would you have done differently? And some people approached it how would you have governed differently? Mm -hmm. And other people approached it as how they personally would have done it differently. Like there was different ones. We all all looked at the question in a different way. And some people felt that there was too much partisanship, there's too much political wrangling rather than government as such, but my experience was that because I was so uh, green, I'll put that way, and I was a uh, newly elected, right into cabinet, had to go in and suffer through question period, which would used to give me anxiety. And you know, because some days those opposition members would pick on one minister, and everybody would ask that one minister a question. You, you'd be on your feet all afternoon. They don't do that so much now. I don't think. I think. I uh, looking back, are you in government to govern? Are you there to be reelect it? Like, why are you there? So I was thought I was there to govern. So I tried to answer the questions and got myself into trouble more often than not by trying to answer the question that would be, the answer would maybe not be politically smart. So I think that if I had to do it over again, I would be a little bit more political. I tried to be honest and answer the question, but I didn't get re-elected. So what do I want to do? Do I want to, you know, so I think it's something that has to be weighed. So as an MLA, you have your constituency, which in those days was very poorly funded. I used to have to subsidize my office personally because mm-hmm. you know to, you gave your poor secretary, who did most of your work for you, when you were, especially when you were in cabinet. They would be, have to face the <laughs> maddening crowds. I think that there's, there should have been, and I think it's better now, I think they have better compensation because that is mm-hmm. paid for by the government. You put in your expense yeah. and all that sort of thing. I enjoyed being in MLA. I enjoyed the experience. I was there for five years. Worked hard, worked really hard, and I think most do. And I had to be in Halifax every three days a week at least for cabinet and priorities and planning and for caucus. So I'd, you know, and then I'd be in my minister's office. So I'd leave, I'd get up at five, and I'd be I'd be in Halifax by seven in my office. I remember call. <laughs> there was a bunch of calls I had to re- return, and I was in the office, and the calls were sitting there. So I thought... I'll get some time now, I'll call. It was a guy in Stewie, I got him out of bed like it was 7 o'clock in the morning. It wasn't dawning on me that (laughs) (laughs) maybe I should wait till 9 before I call anybody. You just, you know, you sort of, you're. And uh, my secretary used to worry about me. I wouldn't have lunch. I'd come in and there'd be a sandwich sitting on my desk. It was fun. I enjoyed working with the Liquor Commission. What a time. My secretary used to call them the boys. The boys? The boys. The boys of the Liquor Commission. Because they're all boys. They're all boys.
1: <laughs> what, uh, what would you say were the more challenging issues you had to do, or the most challenging issues you would have dealt with? Um, as MLA or as the minister?
0: Well, as an MLA, my writing has the Teachers College, the agricultural College, the North Coast Youth Training Center. It had uh, natural resources offices. I would say one of the largest employees in the community was the provincial government. We took 2% salary from them. <laughs> We closed the Nova Scotia Teachers College. We closed the Youth Training Center uh, So, as a government in that five years. So it was a difficult time to be the MLA from the area, to try to improve the situation here, but at the same time when that happened, it meant a major change in how services were delivered and also a major change in the employee status. You know, a, lot of, a lot of them lost their jobs. So it was a challenge to be the MLA, while we were making those tough decisions.
1: And was there, I guess, ever any, it was like holding that dual tension of being part of the cabinet that needs to reduce costs and you know, consider perhaps better ways of training teachers and kind of the local, MLA, being that local MLA, was there kind of a, did that ever a consideration of rejecting that decision or going against
0: that kind of decision? So I was asked by somebody that was, was a bit of an advisor and a supporter, sitting sort of talking about the future when I was still elected and saying to me, you know, did you ever consider resigning because this was happening within your writing? And my answer was no. I never ever considered crossing the floor or resigning because I felt that those decisions were all being made for the right reasons. That's where I was saying that did I want to reinvent government and govern or did I want to be political? So you know, different people say, I wonder what would have happened if I had said to John Savage... You know, if you close the normal college, the teacher's college, I'm the representative of the area. I'm either going to vote against it. Or there was, it wasn't an actual vote in the House, but I'm either going to speak out against it, and you can refire me, or I'll have to leave. I never thought of doing that, ever. I just knew that if, if I couldn't be part of the right decision, I don't know if I could have stayed there, whether stay there within the Liberal caucus and go as an independent or just resign, period. I don't know that I could have done that. Because I don't have a great, a great, a whole lot of uh, admiration for people who cross the floor for political reasons. Now, Scott Bryson, for instance, he his party left him is how he said it, and I so I have a lot of I have to admire him and his standing for uh, what he did. And, but but others, I don't know that I necessarily agree. If it's a political decision that they leave or they cross the floor or go into opposition, so I never I never thought of. Uh, doing that, but different people will ask me now, what do you think would have happened if you'd done that? And I guess it's something that's interesting to think about.
1: Uh And we interviewed, in the legislature the environment minister from John Hamm and Rodney McDonald's government, or I guess just Rodney McDonald's government, Mark Mm Perron, and he shared the the difference between his, his experience working in church where he was minister and then the government where he was minister is that in church there's always, you know, there's still arguments in which politics, he said, but... In the church, you have like a moral compass to point to. You have the Bible, you have scripture, you have teachings, you have you know, everything that the church is based on. And he said in government, the only thing close to a moral compass or a moral reference point is, is it going to get us re elected? And it seems like that is very easy for a lot of politicians to fall into as a default versus you kind know, of what you've articulated as, you know, it was the right decision. Do you have a sense of why it's not more common? I mean, it seems to be it's pretty. Accepted that politicians do things to get reelected versus
0: yeah, you know, you're you get elected, so your first reason to be is to get reelected. I don't know if that's a road that I would take. I didn't do anything to get reelected, so I didn't get reelected. re-elected. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, so and John Savage was the same way. I felt I really felt I really admired him, and he was highly intelligent. Did everything for the right reasons, but his background and he was when he was elected. One of the criticisms, or one of the things people saw coming, was the fact that he was very left wing. They used to call him the pinko. You know, they you know use all those terrible (laughs) words. And I remember remember meeting with him one time, and I and he he was really being crucified, and I did, and he was not comfortable in what was happening because it was almost against his personal thinking of being, you know, very left-wing. So our government ended up being very right-wing <laughs> in our approach to uh, how how we governed. But
1: you would still so, describe him as a person who very left-wing.
0: Yeah, he was very left-wing, so what he was doing was against his grain, if you will, and right. so it made him uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. he he was doing it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. I suppose it being the left reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Doing the right thing for the right reasons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. We're also asking, kind of touched
1: on this a little bit. You know, if you were to, and maybe you have advised people who are seeking elected office or who have recently become MLAs on you know, things to consider, or things to keep in mind that might not be necessarily intuitive, but you know, at the end of five years or however many years experience, you've kind of learned as been helpful to to doing the
0: job, what would you suggest to somebody new to you considering becoming an LA? I think that if anybody came to me and said, do you think I should run, I would say yes. If you've been approached to run for any party or for any elected office, and if you're interested, I think it's, it's a terrific experience. The door opens very rarely to very few people in the world and gives you an opportunity to really contribute to your community. So do it. Then, if they say, what advice would you give me when I run? Be true to yourself. Decide what you want to accomplish you know and go down that road now if you're running for municipal government there's no party affiliation so you're you're pretty well able to then deal with your constituents and try to deliver the sorts of things they want with a in a party system and it's an ongoing argument are you representing the government in the house of assembly or are you representing your people in the house of assembly so it's, it's an ongoing argument so you have to decide if you're if you're going to run are you going to run to represent the people and do their wishes or are you going to be part of a government, and brings up the issue again about being in an opposition and being in government. When you're in opposition, you can fight for your constituents and say everything they want done in your writing because you're asking somebody else to do it. But then when you have to do it, it's a different story. So you have to decide what you want to accomplish. So it's, and in
1: terms of, I guess, beyond sort of the philosophical decisions that they're going to have to make when it comes to sort of the practical pieces of advice for doing the job... What would
0: you suggest? Keep your sense of humor. And I didn't always. You know, I t- took it very seriously. It was mm-hmm. too, I was too serious, maybe. I thought I was supposed to be. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and, and I guess I would still probably, I would probably, I don't think I would change my approach. I don't know if I answered your question. A, <laughs> I went down another road on you, but, but yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I just think keep your sense of humor, remain true to yourself, Remember, you're part of the community. You represent not only yourself, but your family and the people of the riding. You're not only representing your party, you're representing everybody in the riding. You're the MLA for the whole riding. I don't know what you asked me. What did you ask me? <laughs> Practical tips. <but> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, you know, find it. Have good uh, support around you. Mm-hmm. You know, you, know it, uh, you, need, you need good assistance around you, you need good advisors around you. It's, it's not a one man show or a one woman show it's you know it's a so it's a, i would suggest if if i had any advice for that young man right there is to have good people around you and they were making a comment just as you arrived when he ran he owes nobody anything he doesn't have a history of people supporting him to a point where he has to do them any favors he's not in that position where a lot of MLAs or a lot of MPs or leaders will have people they have to repay, if you will. I can't think of the word I want. But they made the point that he doesn't have that. He mm-hmm. doesn't have to anybody he has to, uh, call, you know, to uh, whether it's individuals or whether it's uh, other forms of government or whether it's corporations or whatever. I never thought of it until I heard one of the reporters say that. And I just thought that's a, a really good point. He's his own man, and he'll make his decisions, and he'll have people around him that he doesn't owe anything to.
1: Looking at having lived through the experience of working in the legislature, a lot of people look at the legislature and are confused or frustrated by what they see in there. Having worked there and been there for some time, we always frame this as sort of, you organizational exit interviews, it's kind of the opportunity to share feedback on how the workplace can be improved, knowing that the people leaving have some of the, the best wisdom about kind of the organization by the time they leave. Looking at the way the legislature operates and the way politics operates in, in Nova Scotia, would there be anything you'd change or like to see improve?
0: I think the media has not a lot to do with that, whether how they portray it or how people play to the media. I'd like to see the media... Be in a position. So right now, I don't know if I want to say this on that or not. But is that they, they're making a rock star out of Justin Trudeau, which is very dangerous for him personally. So that I think the media has a role to play, and I think if we could change anything, would be the relationship with the media, between the media and the public, and the media and the, and the elected officials. So I don't know that cameras in the House of Assembly are necessarily a good thing. People play to the camera. It's nice to be open and it's nice if the public can be a part of that and see all of that as long as it's not used to uh, in a detrimental way. So I guess less partisanship in that, you know, and I made this comment the other day is that, you know, they were all talking about having, you know, they were all making the comments about you know being more cooperative and collegial across the floor and that sort of thing and be less partisan. And if somebody in the opposition has a good idea, why can't the government, you know, accept it? Or why doesn't the opposition, if they see the government doing something right, accept it without? Mm-hmm. So, I think less partisanship. Although, then again, I'll come back and say I wasn't partisanship enough. I wasn't. Par- I wasn't right. You know. Yeah. you so. <laughs> you might not
1: have been the, you know, the,
0: the typical partisan? And perhaps some people could do less of it. <laughs> yeah. Do more. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was occasions when I. Doing the right thing also played into the fact that you know it was partisan at the same right, time. But right. I guess it was if it was more balanced from that point of view, you know, and the the uh, the rules in the House of Assembly and how committees are formed and you know the that sort of thing. I think I don't know. I don't know how you would improve it, but I think there's room for improvement.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Record Off Script. We will be back again with full episodes in September and in the meantime, stay tuned for more interviews like this one where we give you a bit of a behind the scenes look at what the podcast is made up of and some of the more interesting conversations we had with former MLAs from all parties in all walks of life. If you haven't done so yet, take a minute and head over to the podcast page on Apple Podcasts and give this podcast a rating. It means a lot to us. It means that people with interests similar to yours can have an easier time finding podcasts like this one that they presumably would also like and if you haven't had a chance to consider donating consider going to offscript.ca slash donate and signing up to be a donor for three dollars five dollars eight bucks a month whatever you feel this podcast is worth to you